So this is the part where you play the intro music, right? I could. Let me. We just sit here for a few minutes. And... No, doesn't happen in the actual recording. <laughs> it's. <laughs> And welcome to Interface. With me, as always, are Chase Measel and Ian Fuchs. And this week, a special guest, Colin Ray. I didn't come up with a cool intro or anything. Nobody told me. So. That's all right. <laughs> Andrew also forgot to introduce himself. That's fine. Andrew Lilge is here also. <laughs> uh, I'm a given. Remember, I'm the host of the podcast. Oh, right. uh. <laughs> Uh, so this week we're going to talk about uh, uh, input methods and the crazy sort of varied and specialized ways that they've evolved over the years. In the beginning, there was the keyboard. Is that true? A keyboard came before mouse. Well, okay. In the, I mean, <laughs> I mean, in the very beginning, I guess it was um, punch cards, wasn't it? Yeah, something like that. Like a lot of men. punch cards. What came first, PC gaming or console gaming? You know, consoles like the mm. like first consoles. I don't know. PC I guess, gaming. I guess yeah, PC because it was all like the Commodore sixty four and stuff before that. Right, I don't know. Right. I really don't know that much about. Pong was like the but. first popular game, and that's like that predates Commodore. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. Actually, uh, so there's this great video on YouTube of a brief history of video game controllers. Uh, in let's see, nineteen. 19- 58 tennis for oh two. Gosh, there you go. It's just this this slab with two buttons of different. My sizes assumption is that somewhere in Doug Engelbart's demo, he plays some type of video game because oh, he yeah. needs another first of the world in that thing. Uh, yeah, probably actually. <laughs> <laughs> Multiplayer live chat real time. How sad is it that like of all the things that he is remembered for, it's inventing the mouse, which he didn't even actually do. <laughs> did successfully demo it. Yeah, he moved a box with a button on it. Well, as far as input methods go... Yeah, sorry, we go back to that. No, no, that's all right. It's still worthwhile stuff. As far as input methods go, though, right? So we go back to that. So we're in the late 60s. We're looking at keyboard, mouses, sort of. That's where that begins. And we're essentially still there as our primary forms of input. But there's obviously a lot of other things we can talk about. I think you're right, though, that it starts with the keyboard. So keyboard being... You know, this mechanical well, input with lots of different functions, and you learn how to use it, right? And it can five, do a whole bunch of stuff, but it's relatively difficult. Five years before the Mother of All demos, of course, there was Sketchpad, which allowed you to oh. do uh, yeah. pen entry into computers in 3D really? and 2D. It's unbelievable for the time. It's unbelievable now. Like, there's wow. still no application that exists that lets you do 3D in such an elegant and uh, intuitive way. I'm sure you could probably find something. I My guess is there's probably not an application to use the input method. So this is a separate thing, right? So there's all these great input methods, right. but is there an application to actually take advantage of them? That's a totally separate question. Right. Um, okay, but let's agree, right? You guys all agree with me <laughs> um, that keyboard is the start, right? And it's highly varied, lots of uses. Um, I When I say difficult, I don't mean that it's difficult to use. It's obviously a low cost of entry for difficulty, um, but it's you know it's sufficiently broad so it's not really specialized for any one thing either so good place to start what else are we using now so do you, should we timeline this you want to walk up through it 
I don't know if a timeline is necessarily correct because there's always going to be people who are like, oh, I invented that back in the 30s using a rock and a right. hammer. Oh, sure. sure well, you, you – Yeah. But, I mean, like – How about popularized, popularized versions? Well, I'm even thinking you said keyboard and mouse are basically where it started. I, I, for me, I think of, like, what's the mass consumer input method? Because I think that's what most people think of. Like, well, not necessarily now, but just in general. Yeah. So you're talking about all these things that were yeah. demoed in the 60s. A lot of those weren't things that everyone had. But as people got computers oh, yeah. or typewriters, it was the keyboard. And then you fast right. forward a little bit and you add the mouse to it. And the mouse, like Chase said, is kind of something we've stuck with for a long time. But it's seen a lot of kind of revampings and rethinkings and ways people have tried to change the mouse to make it more functional, more useful. Uh, I mean, whatever the whatever the word is for it. And, I mean, and so it's it's gone from... Fundamentally, the changes... It, it, it's gone from a little... Right box that you hold in your hand to a square pad on your laptop that you drag your finger over or a i mean a, it went to the the most superior version was of course the hockey puck the circle with the weird yeah that was that was it. obviously the pinnacle of the mouse um yeah but you have things like the trackpad you have things like the trackball where they said oh let's flip the mouse over and just roll the ball around under our hand because that's more uh, space conscious because you don't have to actually move this mouse around on the desk now you can just roll your thumb or your finger over the ball or the uh was it the touch point the little joystick nub that sat in your keyboard on old laptops that everyone hated and nobody understood yeah. why it was there but it was there and they tried to make it work um and a lot of people love it uh, those people are <laughs> I, I wouldn't say a lot of people i think some people love it i think there's a small <laughs> segment that does my my work laptop yeah. actually has one and how often do you use it? Yeah. The biggest evidence are terrible is that every time you see, you see somebody with a Windows laptop and one of those little nubs on it, uh, unvariably, they have a shitty little wireless mouse they're using next to it, like on their other knee or something sure. like that. And, and most of those computers that had that also still had a trackpad or touchpad, rather, mm-hmm. like that, that whole, like, what's the line between trackpad and touchpad and, and the multi-touch trackpad and stuff like that. Okay. So a lot of words that kind of all mean the same thing are in the same in the same vein. I mean, I think yeah. they'll come down to the fact that the primary interface metaphor for the last 60 years has been the the window with tiny buttons that you need extreme precision to be able to touch. And you can't do that very well without a, a high-precision input device like a mouse or a sure. trackpad. And I think it's interesting to look at the, the change in how, uh, at least for gamers, there's a split between like game consoles and PC gaming. And how the different how things have over time have diverged so rapidly because like initially you would interact with things fairly similarly you'd have like a joystick or something or a trackball on a on a console system and then that very quickly moved towards like uh, D pads and joysticks and that kind of thing and what that means is that the console interface has evolved over time has means that there's like with the exception of Destiny really you never have to worry about a, a cursor or anything on screen the interfaces have been designed in very different ways to to avoid that sort of thing. Which leads to a lot of friction too, especially when games are ported from one platform to the other. You know, you have people always complaining about PC. You know, oh, this UI was designed for consoles and not for a mouse and right. stuff like that. Which is fine because, generally speaking, you can use a mouse uh, on uh, a, a console interface. The flip side of that, you but, could um, you could also use a gamepad on a computer, right? I mean, that's 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 how you play games, right, absolutely, and. And Chase is a, yeah, but, a fan of the old school WASD and the, the arrows. 
you know, PC Master Race is still a keyboard mouse, right? But I <laughs> well, think, you know, but to your point, Andrew does a lot of console style gaming on his computer, but he's a huge fan of um, big picture mode on Steam and all the games that and the games that he plays, even if it's not within Steam big picture mode, like Titanfall. Got my plug in. Um, $5 on Steam. I'm playing a lot of Titanfall again. I'm super excited about Titanfall too. I'm just going to say it. And, um, so when you're playing Titanfall, that game's UI was built around having parity with console and PC. So then, you know, playing with a controller on a PC is no sure. big deal. But there are some there's some obvious examples if you're trying to play. You know, let's go to like if you look at MMOs on console. So if you look at like Final Fantasy XI, which is on 360 and PS3, that required a keyboard really to do much of anything because using the controller for that and for any MMO, it's, it's so text heavy and the uh, inputs are so varied in like. Just there's just highly, highly different based on what role you're playing or what you're even doing within the game. You can't get away with the console. And then on the over other end of the spectrum in the sort of MMO persistent, I'm in dealing with people space, you have things like Rocket League and Destiny, which have given you an oversimplified list of interactions that you can do to you know to interact with people. So you can do like, you know, waving and sitting and dancing in Destiny or in Rocket League, you can use, you know, up to the preset sixteen conversational pieces to do a lot right. of meaning. And uh, we've talked about that briefly, but they're good examples of how you can get a lot out of not much. Mid two thousands, Nintendo would like to disagree with you that you can't use a keyboard on a console <laughs> with the GameCube uh, keyboard controller, which is just imagine you took a GameCube controller and cut it in half and then attached either end of it to a like a full size keyboard and then really plugged that into your GameCube, which is what well, you have. And Chase is a big fan of the new uh, what the X, not new but Xbox One's chatpad. Yeah, is that what it's called? Oh, I mean, God. I don't know if I'm, I'm not a big fan, but I, I think it has a purpose. You heard it I here fo- first, folks. Chase Measle, big fan of Chatpad. So I'm a huge Chatpad fan. Let's get that out there. Right now, I'm telling you about the Xbox One Chatpad. No, no, Chatpads, it's like you want to do, if you want to do any like quick texting sure. or textile inputs on your console, it makes a lot of sense. But it's it's not there, right? Like, it's I'd rather just send a voice. Like, I still just send little voice clips to friends more frequently than actually send text messages. What I find so offensive about the chat pad is that it's it's what we've been dancing around here, which is that you have to have like the right input device for the right application. And on a console where you have a gamepad, which already is designed comfortably fit in your hand to do the things you need it to do, or a controller, right? You don't want to have to have like a forty entry or forty button keyboard that you also have to deal with on there, even if it's small and tiny and shitty and your thumbs work on it, right? Because that's just not the way you want to interact with the console. And, and realistically, all that's like, like Chase said, it's it's really like both you guys said. It's really only giving you a way to send messages. It's not used as a, a game input method, correct? Beyond just conversation, right? Right. Yep. And so that not, I think that's that a, I've seen at least that's a big difference. And and you also touched on it, uh, Chase, with with voice, and that's kind of another input method that. Not to make this an entire games podcast, uh, that can be utilized both in gaming and outside of gaming as an input method, um, and kind of like what feels like it's maybe edging on the next way to input with thing or input information and interact with with the devices in front of you. I mean, Xbox does a great job of the uh, connect voice commands. Where you can you can turn it on, you can ask it to change the channel on the TV. you can ask it to play music or search the internet or whatever stuff like that, and and that's that's using that uh, all the iOS devices and your Windows devices and your Google devices like we've talked about have ways to request or act on things or perform some type of task when it works uh, through voice, um, and so so voice feels like it might be kind of edging on the next thing that we see as an input device 
Not that it's not already a thing, but I think it, getting to a point where it's usable. Uh, yeah. yeah. We talked about this before. I think voice falls down the minute you try to do anything that can't be that requires any amount of direct control over something like that. Like example, I don't know what you mean. So you're never going to use voice to control Photoshop, right? Okay, yeah. Um, but nobody wants you to use voice to control Photoshop, right? But I mean, it's again the input device has to fit the needs of the app. Well, then, yeah. With with yeah. that as an example, you automatically have to then roll back to what I would consider a legacy technology by comparison to then interact with Photoshop because now you have to roll back to a mouse pointing device. We'll go with pointing device because it could be whatever mousing device you want. Um, yeah. Or a finger that works too. Um, but a, a pointing device where you, you can now click on the tool and hover over the image and crop exactly where you want it with precision. Whereas voice doesn't offer that precision. You could say, cut a square out of the middle of it. Well, how big of a square where is the middle when you say the middle do you mean the middle horizontally vertically dead center like so trying to use voice with photoshop is is less logical so like i said you have to you have to have another input device and and trying to figure out what that device what what is best as that device in the middle enhance 233 to 444 <laughs> <laughs> oh my god okay so yeah so you're not going to do that um that's, so I think the better conversation, though, is the seeing what software and what design choices people make based on what input devices they think that their audience is going to be using, right? So you design Photoshop around people using a keyboard and mouse, and you design or a, a video game on... You can do that. I'm just... No, it's so been you, explicitly designed to allow that sort of thing. There's a lot of controls that only will pop up when you have a tablet plugged in. Yeah, so, so yeah, you would design for a tablet. I was just... Yeah, okay, fine. But, so but I'm just saying, like... I think Photoshop is a really interesting decision because they've allowed you to do stuff with uh, a tablet, uh, with the mouse and keyboard, and then also they have some variations for it on iOS that allow you to interact with touch, and then you can also do really fine precision controls there too because they allow you to zoom in and out, and they have really forgiving undo and redo. Yeah, so that's great. So there's examples of them designing, you know, using the, their design constraints for their platform, right? That's that's all I'm saying. Oh, I see. Yeah. So then you, yeah. So then if you're building, so if you're building Photoshop for keyboard and mouse, it, you build it one way. If you're then to your example, if you're using it for tablet or iOS specific, you know, features, and you can use those too. But then on the other end of the spectrum, when you know you're designing for a more input limited audience, so if you're building a console game for PlayStation or Xbox or something, right? Then you know that you have this set number of inputs, and you can build it around that. So I think some of the more interesting conversations. Like because we all get what that is and we've seen examples of it, or when you start trying to flip that paradigm on its head and you start building an input device that serves multiple masters. So I would like to hear Colin's thoughts on the Steam controller because to me that is still this weird unicorn that, like the touch point and other things, seems to have a lot of like people who are in love with it and they would never use anything else. And I've read some things that people never want to see it again. And, and it's b- so crazy. before you dive into so this, good. explain the Steam controller because I have not seen one of these in person. Yeah, yeah. I understand like what it looks like, but I don't know that I fully understand how it works. So, have you seen a valve before? That's how you control steam. It's you just you, turn you it. Yeah. The pipes. You can turn them. Thank left you, right, yeah. jackass. <laughs> the steam controller. <laughs> the steam controller. It um, you know it, it's sort of an evolution and iteration of the uh, you know the dual stick analog controllers that we've all been using. Just like the the next generation of dual stick analog controllers. <laughs> instead of in, instead of the analog sticks, I guess it has one, but it's re- actually replaced the button pad and one of and the left analog stick or wait yeah, shoot I have it here on my desk yeah. um, okay. <laughs> so 
it's replaced um, the directional button pad and then one of the analog sticks with track pads. And then these track pads actually have little haptics in them that can simulate different uh, like textures and stuff as you're touching it. And then on top of that, um, Steam has this software that lets you completely configure the controller to do whatever you want. So if you want the trackpad to behave like an analog stick, then you can do that. If you want it to behave like a mouse, you can do that. If you want it to map the coordinates of the screen in a square on the trackpad, and then wherever you touch automatically moves the mouse on your screen, it supports that. Oh, that's and, good. and that's just the trackpad. It, you know, it, it has that kind of support with, or sorry, that level of detail of um, configuration with the triggers and every single button. And I, honestly, I could just ramble about all the configuration here for an hour probably because it's it's really insane. I think that's it's, what it makes it beyond, so unique. It goes even beyond that because uh, because you you can have it has inputs all these inputs too because it has this haptic stuff it has outputs too. Um, and then it has a lot of variation in the sort of things you can do with every button. So you can trigger stuff to change functionality when you press certain buttons or when you hold certain buttons. There's so much power baked into this thing. And you can change the response Wait, so, curves and stuff. So this is a super expert-heavy device. So then my question to Colin is, um, do you find yourself actually spending a lot of time remapping stuff? <laughs> or is there like, this is the most popular map for this game, so you're going to use like one of these two popular... Um, yeah, I think... Layouts so when I, when I first got the Steam controller, I... I totally spent like 20 hours just configuring it and like not even really playing the game. Like I was playing it just to figure out like, Oh, is this mapping? Yeah. You know, does it feel natural? And just constantly yeah. in the game, play a little bit, jump out, tweak it a little bit back and forth that cycle. Um, and so now for most of the games that I play all the time, like rocket league, I've, you know, settled into a configuration that feels like optimal to me. And so now I don't really touch it anymore. Yeah. Um, and so I'd say that, that that sort of process has become like a new game. Maybe I'll, I'll start by checking out the community uploads because you can upload these configurations to a yeah. community portal where you can then download them. Um, so I'll check out you know the top ones, see if one really makes sense, maybe play with that a while. And then as you're playing the game, then you sort of start to think, oh, maybe it'd be good if I just move that over here. And so then you start making tweaks as, as you go. I'd say that's... That's um, typical of my use. I don't know exactly how a lot of other people use it. I think there's lots of people who do just download the number one profile and go with that. Andrew's pointing at himself. Me, because I'm a heathen. <laughs> so I have, so I have, I have a couple of really nice parallels that support that stuff. I'm really happy to hear you say this. So I just, I just completed a study like yesterday. And the final results were, and it was about reconfigurable buttons. And it was finding out whether people would want to set things up to be the way they want them or whether they would use presets, right? And that's exactly what we found is that there's a group, like it's two groups of people. One group of people want to have the presets and they want to be able to tweak them as they need. So it's like, let's go out and use it. I figure out that I don't really like this button for whatever function and you switch it or whatever, right? And then there's the other group of people who are like, just give me the defaults. Like, I trust you. You make good stuff. So. It's great to hear you say that you do both because that totally, <laughs> totally validates what I was thinking with all that. And then secondly, with like the top mapping things. Um, so one of the games that uh, they've spoken about on Idle Thumbs a lot recently is Imbroglio on iOS, which is like a little dungeon. I don't know. It's like a little, t- it's a tactic style game, but anyway. Roguelike tactic style dungeon crawler puzzle game. That's all that. It's all of that and absolutely none of it. Um, so no, it's a, it's like a top down tactics game, but it does a lot with a limited amount of space because it's like a, I think it's a four by four or five by five board. 
and you move your character around. But the main part, the main point I'm trying to make though, is that you can customize the board, like you'd customize your controls, and then you can see on the leaderboard, like you know, the overall leaderboard, who has the top score and what configuration they had. So hmm. I'm imagining, like, here's the top player for this particular game. What's their Steam mapping for their controls, yeah. right, or whatever? Mm-hmm. I think it's the Steam controller is so interesting because it was Valve's attempt to bring the PC gaming into the living room. And what's so hard about that is that so few games for a PC are actually optimized for a controller. So you have first-person shooters and a few other things like that that work fine, but for things like strategy games or you know, basically anything that requires you to point and click with a mouse, you just can't really play them with a controller very easily. And so this is them trying to meet the demands of two masters, which is the those of games that are optimized for mouse and keyboard and those that are optimized for controller. Because a controller is a really convenient way to sit in your living room and play a game. I think they've done actually a really good job of doing that because of all the customization that it allows you to do. So games that play with a console controller really well seem like that should be an easy fit for the Steam controller, mm-hmm. and that seems like an easy win that you can you know configure to make it you know better. So like just like you've done, Colin, do you find that games that are built for keyboard and mouse work like well enough, or are they better, or like where does the where do you think the ball lands with respect to like playing Dota or an RTS or something? Yeah, I still actually to this day have not tried it with an RTS. Um, okay, <laughs> I, I tried it a little bit with Torchlight, and it seemed like it would work, but I didn't get too deep into it i'm afraid um the the main thing the main like you know pc kind of game that's not really designed for controllers that i've used it with is obviously first person shooters so i've spent a lot of time playing fallout tried a little bit of counter-strike with it and uh and the thing the kind of innovation that people have come up with that for those kind of games with the steam controller is they will um the, they use the trackpad for like coarse grained aiming, like just kind of orienting yourself mm-hmm. on the screen. And then mm-hmm. there's a gyro in the Steam controller, actually, a little accelerometer. Uh, and then they use that for more fine grained aiming. So they'll like flick the trackpad. Yeah. And people are getting really that's good at it. That's what I do it too. Yeah. Um, wow. So that's the recommended way to play uh, first person shooters. A shooter? Is, uh, that's a totally different way to play. It's totally different. And it's so weird to get used to. You like, because you have to sort of like think about, you know, what is my primary method right now? Like, do I flick the trackpad to like move over and then switch to a new right. mode? Like, oh, I got to orient the controller. It's so weird. And, oh, yeah. you know, I, I'm pretty bad at it, but I do feel like I get better the more I do it. And I think that, um, you know, if you gave someone who'd never played any first-person shooters on the PC, if you gave them a Steam controller from day one, I bet that they would be just as good with that as anybody You think on. they're as good as keyboard mouse? I think that they could definitely get yes. up to that level, yeah. Okay. So better than comp- but better than a traditional controller. Definitely better than a traditional controller. That's, that's the gap, right? Yeah. So I found, I found the gyro controls really easy to use. I just want to... One thing. And so teaching people who've never played video games to use a controller, uh, I think this might be because of because of the Wii is that a lot of the times like in a racing game or something like that if they want to turn like really hard to the side people will like physically rotate the controller to do (laughs) it so I wonder if you gave somebody a trackpad or a controller that allowed actual like rotation of the device to then affect what was going on in the game if that would mean that they could pick it up easier and be more skilled down the line Hmm. because it seems to me at least somebody who has no experience that's how they want to interact with it and so it suits what they already know how to do isn't the PS4 controller wanting to able to do accelerometer stuff and turn and stuff like that but it, so this is and it's pressure sensitive so buttons this is something that i always found weird for me uh, at games because i don't play games all that often but i even notice this on on like my iphone or on the the apple tv very casual gaming like the whatever 
Asphalt 8 or whatever the racing game. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the way they have the controller designed is you actually are turning the physical controller, and as you turn it, it's it's doing your steering. And that's not how I visualize these games. So, like, I've played games on my iPad where the primary way to, like, steer a car, which seems to be a really popular way to use the accelerometer is just for your steering stuff, or the tilt forward to accelerate and tip back to, to brake. I always go in and I shut off the the tilt controls and I want the on-screen buttons because my, it probably goes back to my gaming when I was young, that everything was physical buttons. I didn't have the accelerometer controls to do stuff like that. And so like for for you, Andrew, it might be really logical to use tilt because that just feels natural, but I'll sit downstairs on, on my Xbox and I'll, I'll play Forza and yeah, I'm still turning the Xbox controller, but I know it's not doing anything. I'm just doing it because it's the same reason I tilt my head and my entire body sideways. Like I want to give it everything I have, yeah. but I'm still jamming the, the joystick all the way to the side because that's actually how I control it. And that to me yeah. feels like the natural way to do it. But the then connect but, actually but, reads how much you lean and that's how you get is that what, is that what it is out of your steering. Yeah. It's 95 on the, on the joystick 5%. Yeah, that's <laughs> but that's like, but that's, I mean like obviously it's a natural way for you to do it by tilting the controller too. Right. So how cool would it be that your controller could then take mm-hmm. that and in a, you know, a measured way, actually allow you to control the game that way i think i think it's so i think that's cool but i'll tell you right now that the way i tilt my hands is not as precise as how well i can move my thumb like or maybe right. my whole hand as a mouse that's that's where i would draw the differentiation it's right. not that it's not fun or you know people don't get it i just think that there's a more precise you know es- especially when you compare it to the mapping of like a real car like you you, do, you turn the wheel a lot more than a third of a turn to make a really sharp corner. No, you're going to crank the wheel all the way. Yeah. So if I'm trying to drift around a corner, I'm not going to like only turn my hands, you know, 30 degrees or whatever. You should be yeah. like flipping the right. controller over in your hand to the point where the whole car is yeah. sliding out. And that's just not practical with a controller partially because it's not mounted to anything. Right. That's, well, that's a good point. Yeah. One thing I do want to mention. Yeah. I've tried racing games with the steam controller and, uh, like the biggest problem I have is that it's like sticking out in front of me and I can't really like stabilize it against anything, you know? So my car is always kind of wobbling all over the place. Oh yeah. That's why they have the smoothing feature. (laughs) Maybe I just got to turn that on. That's also why they have uh, the actual steering controllers for a lot of games is because Mm -hmm. it it was to add to that realism of now it feels like you're actually driving a car. And in those, like those types of situations, I used to have a steering controller for my PS2 back in the day and played Gran Turismo with it. And that felt totally normal to sit there and and crank the wheel around because it was the it was the correct input device or at the time felt like the correct input yeah. device for the action that I was doing. It was just like a car; it was mirroring the input yeah. on a car, pedals and all. And your and your brain does a really nice job of mapping that because I played a bunch of racing games too, and you know you can have your like the cheap controllers generally have 360 degrees of movement or maybe slightly more but a decent controller has 920 or more and so being able to rotate your wheel three times over you know feels a lot more and it is more precise than having it you know the same amount like having triple the movement mapped in you know a third of the space so if you're using the only one rotation movement so anyway it's just weird how your brain can sort of take care of that which then if you look at like top tier fps players and you look and see what their actual sensitivity on their mouse is. It's really low, like relatively speaking. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, on 
actually on console, I thought it would be the same thing. So I remember having my, my sensitivity like at a two out of 10 or something initially. And I, I used to play with that a lot, but then this was back in halo three. I don't know what the current meta is, but at that time, the top halo players were all using really high. Yeah. Laugh at me. You know, it's the meta. <laughs> the top sensi- the top sensitivity that at that time was really high because it was all about twi- Twitch reaction and like people being really, really quick on the turnaround and whatnot. Anyway, one cool application I've seen for the Steam controller is uh, people who use it for non-gaming reasons. Um, there's a small but dedicated group of people who use it for video editing because because um, of all the inputs and the, because it's really extensible. Right, it's highly extensible. It has a ton of inputs, and a lot of them are analog. So they find it really great. You can use the because they're two circular trackpads. You can use one of them. You can yeah. just spin your thumb across it and scrub back and forth between video. It's like the iPod thing. Right, and. Apple started doing this with um, the newest version of iMovie in the laptops with the Force Touch trackpad, the one that doesn't actually click. It has the electromagnet in it that feels like you are. When you reach the end of a clip on that one, you can feel your finger bump over the edge of it, which is very cool. And Steam is also doing that in the keyboard. So you type on the Steam controller using the trackpads. It's two of them, and it's a split keyboard. So the left trackpad controls the left side and the right the right side. And as you move your thumbs across the trackpad, you can feel the bumps between every key. Uh, and I think there's a lot of potential for developers to start actually using the haptic feedback in the Steam controller to provide much more intuitive uh, sense of where things are on, you know, where the things are on the displays you move across them. I think that's really smart. I think I think the haptic feedback in general stands to have a lot of improvement for people, and then the sheer customization for the like for the steam controller and things that are going to be coming like that assuming we're gonna have more of them also seem that they're, they'd be a nice fit for the accessibility community because mm-hmm. i assume there's a population of people who would much rather use a controller that can highly customize than having to spend you know money and time learning to use physical peripherals like having you know you know highly dedicated audio um you know right. equipment and then or your mouse and keyboard even it used to be that if you like didn't have a hand or something, you had to remap all the controls to one side, and a lot of games didn't let you do that. The Steam Controller now, even if the game doesn't let you do that, you can do it yourself. And even better, you can set it up in a way that suits your particular ability level. That's really good. So we all like the Steam Controller, even though 25% of us have used it. Yeah. 50%. <laughs> 50%. 50%. 50%. Okay. It's crazy, but you know, it's very it, it, whether or not it's the future, it's definitely going to be shape the way controllers move in the future, I think. Yeah, I think there's a use for it, yeah. Wait, should we take a break? Sure, good good choice. Break time. Hey, everybody. It's Ian again. And this week, I'd like to talk to you about sharing. When we were young, sharing always seemed so hard. We wanted to keep things to ourselves, things that were ours, and things we didn't want anyone else to have. Now, as adults, we're expected to share so much more, and often, even when we don't want to. Fortunately, when it comes to sharing your favorite podcast, it couldn't be any easier. If you're enjoying the show, or have enjoyed any of the shows, or are just enjoying hearing me read these little ad spots, do us a favor and share Interface with a friend that might enjoy it. If everybody shares just a little more, the world will be a better, more informed place. So Chase, uh, your daughter's been uh, experimenting with the Wii U. That's another interesting That's right. way to input into again games, but it's another way to interact with your console. Uh, how does that? Yep. How does that paradigm compare to some of the other stuff we've already talked about? Sure. So I think first of all, 
First games. Sorry, I know that we talked a lot about games. But let's just put this out there. Games are the experimental playground for many an input method, for many a design feature, like to try new interaction methods. So, although, like, and yeah. you know, it's not like we're lying. We all like games, or you know, it's it's not difficult for us to talk Except about something. Ian. I mean, and even Ian likes games. We can go. You know what? We're gonna get some. We're gonna get a real LAN. We're gonna play Dark Forces and Quake Three and Total A. And Ian and I are gonna be very happy, and you two will also be happy. <laughs> Actually, Colin will already be happy. Andrew will have to welcome you into. The world of Ni- 90s games, of, uh, 90s video games. <laughs> Never done a land thing yeah. before. And That's Andrew and I both use our Steam controllers to play. <laughs> yeah. That's fine. I'm, I'm totally yeah. on board with that. So, so you guys want to do a real land? That's what you're saying. <laughs> Con's like yes. Yeah, Con's like yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Anyway, so but to get to the Wii U, the Wii U pad. So my daughter's three. Um, her she has a March birthday, so she's pretty young three. And I was letting her. You know, she's played like different tablet games and whatnot for a while. Um, but none of them she's been able to like really get into or be super excited about. So when I introduced like Mario, because Sarah and I had been playing Mario, we brought out the Super Nintendo, so she wanted to see Sarah play Super Mario World, and she liked that. But she, it's pretty hard for her to use the D-pad. And I think that's true for like kids in general, because the D-pad is, well, even Super Nintendo D-pad or original NES D-pad, right? Those are pretty stiff um, and hard to have any like decent control. So she liked that, but she couldn't really play it. And then I got the Nintendo 64 out, and she could play more Super Mario 64. So I thought, oh, yeah, the joystick makes a lot more sense for you because it doesn't take as much effort to use, and, like, the mapping makes sense. And so she could do that. And then I got Disney Infinity hooked up because she likes switching the characters, and she'd been doing that with, you know, actually switching the physical characters to see the different characters on screen change. And then she, I gave her the Xbox controller, and she could like, start running around and started figuring that out. So once she'd like started figuring out how to do that and then jump, she had the basics of platforming down. And we have the Wii U hooked up, so I thought, you'd like Mario on here. So we've got Super Mario 3D World. And she started playing that, and like to my surprise, she because she knew the basics of platforming, movement, and jumping, she could do like 75% of the Mario stuff. And then the Wii U itself becomes like the better controller, and I think like I don't know that I would start a kid on a different controller at this point because she can move easily, she can jump easily, and all especially in Super Mario 3D World because that game is like beautifully designed for a kid to learn all of the interaction, like all of the different things in the environment you can interact with. You can touch on screen to pop a you know to pop one of the blocks instead of jumping underneath it. You can touch the trees to shake the snow out of them and get coins or whatever. So it all makes perfect sense to her because everything she uses has been touch enabled. So that all maps nicely, and then there's super nice like. I don't know, like help features essentially where if you die five times in a level, you get a Tanuki suit that's like permanent star power. So that way she can't die to enemies. So she can run into enemies and doesn't have to master all of the jumping and weird difficulty, difficult things. She just has to do the platforming. So now she can, she's beaten through the third world on her own and she's two, like two chapters into Captain Toad Treasure Tracker and that's her current favorite game. But both of these games are super great because she can interact with the world on the touch and move around easily with the joystick. So anyway, lots of thoughts, but I think the Wii U and specifically those Mario, like Super Mario 3D World is an amazing game for kids to start with. You replaced the part of your daughter's brain that could learn German with how to use an analog stick. And now she's going to be a prodigy. She'll thank me later <laughs> when we all speak either English or Chinese, so we don't need German. There was that guy who, like, as his son was getting older, he, like, he started him playing, like, Pong and then slowly ramped him up to, like, Pac-Man and stuff like that. And eventually his son article. got, he found, like, a lot of games and now went to be baby games. And he got, like, this 12-year-old got super, super, super into Dark Souls. Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> that kid, that's the, the dad who ran him through every generation of yeah. gaming. Like, he, he curated his, like, come up through the ages. I still, like, I'll do that type of stuff with Aubrey, but it, it didn't make sense because I wanted her to be able to play now, and she can't play Nintendo. So she just, it's too hard for her to play Nintendo. Right. I guess I could wait, but the I'm not patient. Ph- and, physical buttons just are, are not as simple for interaction as something that she can 
just slide with like she basically puts her thumb on the joystick and then it's just slide your yeah. thumb up and down how she could do her whole palm on top of the joystick if she wanted to without even and so yeah, the exactly. input is much less precise or much less precision is required to do it it's like much less strength but yeah yeah actually i think the joystick is more precise because she has a lot easier time navigating like there's levels where you have to walk on thin strips of you know like thin bridges or something otherwise you'd fall off she is way better with the joystick but if you gave her the d-pad i don't she'd just like run over the edge or something <laughs> Anyway, so that's I think that's a fun use case for kids and in input devices, and specifically why I think the Wii U just it's it's just like the nice weird it's the weird perfect marriage of a child born in 2013 for her right or this time because she's all the stuff that she gets to play with is touch, so the touching inter- touch interaction makes sense. Plus, it's um, accessible enough for her and not having like super strong hands or having big hands to be able to use the rest sure. of the things. So, so so touch anyway. is an input method. Obviously, we've we've already touched on that a little bit. Yeah, um, yeah. We've we've touched on that a little bit with the the Steam controller because it's like you said, it's, it's a touch based controller. Yes, you can do all the mapping and stuff like that, and there's there's a lot of complexity involved in that. Um, but then the Wii has touch on it. All of our smartphones and tablets have touch. Some people have made the mistake of buying laptops with touch. Whatever it is. <laughs> Some people have made the mistake of developing their entire operating system around the idea that touch is the universal way of interfacing with a computer. Right. So, so what is the what what are the upsides of Microsoft? What are the upsides of touch as an input device, and and what are some things that could be added to uh, like supplement or run adjacent to touch without going backwards in input methods to to kind of starting to look towards the future of, of input methods? What's what's coming so the world under glass right that's what we're talking about like everything that's yeah you know you look at it and you can touch and drag around it with with pcs yeah i think we've like we've already all decided that we don't want to interact with our desktops as touch being the primary input device but it's because we don't have huge shoulders that can hold our arms up in front of us i think yeah sure right we don't we don't have gorilla arms we don't have gorilla arms that's right um but I think you'd be remiss to say that, like, not having any touch on the desktop is, like, the universal standard. There's plenty of people, I think, I think if you put touch, if you enable touch on, like, OS X as it is, there'd probably be people who would find uses of it. Mac OS, sorry. Not, it's, can't, I can't say OS X? Isn't that the current know. one? Are we in? No, it's Mac OS. I see what you're saying. But I, so I disagree with you because even though some people could find some uses, it's clearly not the best way to do it because it would be a small percentage of people who have a small percentage of applications for it because it's just not designed to suit touch like that. It's designed to be really good with a keyboard and mouse. Yeah, but you could, there's obviously concessions and changes you can make that would make, if there's a scenario where the touch is the better input method, Mm -hmm. you could design around that. Like, sure. And then you have iOS. So I literally prefer scrolling with my thumb on the screen. That is the one thing I miss mm. from having a touch screen because I went back with, to a non-touch screen on my laptop. So, what do you mean like you hold I your thumb up on the it, side and scroll? When I huh. when I read articles, I have my thumb up on the screen and I scroll with my thumb. Like that was a useful feature, and I think scrolling itself, you know, and you can definitely still scroll obviously with your trackpad or anything yeah. else. But being able to scroll with your screen was nice for me, and it was my preferred method. So there's a case where I think. And, and I'm not the only one. Like, I think if you give it to a bunch of people, that w- would by far and away not be the minority of people who like scrolling, like using their hand on the screen. But that's just one example that you could build around having touch. So I think all I'm saying is I think it's a mistake to say that universally touch is wrong for a particular operating system or paradigm. I just think that 
um, it's not obviously the preferred one for this one, so or for preferred for desktop, and especially for being proficient, right? Because we know that touch is not the most proficient sure. or efficient way. But to, but to reinforce that that touch does make sense or could make sense on a desktop machine, put your iPad next to your computer screen and use it for 15 or 20 minutes doing some task and then switch over to your laptop to do one thing really fast. And nine times out of 10, you're going to jab the screen at your computer with your finger because touch makes enough sense. I, I, I kid you not. I have done it so many times. I have fingerprints all over my screen where I've reached over and all I'm trying to do is I, I want to take a window that's in the background and bring it to the foreground. So all I want to do is touch it to make it the active application. And so I reach over and put my finger on the screen and I'm like, Oh, I can't do that. And I have to reach down to the trackpad and move the mouse and do that. Yeah, that's so, a, yeah. I, right. That's and so it's, it's like, example. yes, I'm not saying that I want to do Photoshop on my Mac with my finger because the lack of precision, although the ability to do pinch to zoom makes the precision less of an issue. Um, but the idea that simple things like opening an, opening an app, um, tapping a button to send a tweet, whatever it is, switch windows, open an app, do something else, open another app, do something else, pause the song that's playing, all of that, which are very common things we do on a computer, scrolling on a web page could be done with touch on a laptop. And most of that is it, it's not things so, that you're keeping your, because you talk about the gorilla shoulders and having to hold your arm up the whole time. You don't have to do that for a long period of time for most of these interactions. It's when you have, yeah, right, but it's wrong. one of those things like, yeah. yes, when you have to use your computer now interacting with something on the screen for 45 minutes, an hour straight where you're doing, you know, keyboard and mouse, the mouse makes sense because it's much more comfortable to have your arms resting on the desk and, and doing your interaction. But for the little five second, two second, one second interactions we do with a computer all day, a lot of those things make a lot of sense with touch. So Clayton Miller came up with the idea of the 10 GUI, which solved this problem. Colin, do you want to talk about that? Sure. Um, yeah. yeah uh, <laughs> let me see. It's been a long time since I watched this video, but um, you know, basically it's exactly what you were saying, Ian. Um, touch can be a really natural way to interact with the desktop, but nobody wants to hold their arms out in front of them all day long. Um, So Tengui uh, takes the touch screen and sort of moves it down and replaces the keyboard with a touch interface, presumably that you can still type on. But then now that gives you the ability to use all 10 fingers when you're interacting with the computer. And it takes it even further and then kind of redesigns the desktop around that interaction, comes up with all these different, you know, what is a gesture with five fingers? What is like a what does a, um, a pinch or a pan with five fingers mean versus two or one? And um, and then one of the, what I really like about Tengui is um, he completely gets rid of like the window idea, and instead it's all these like full screen pages or half screen pages that you can kind of like layer on top of each panels. other and stuff. Panels is a good way to describe it. Yeah, windows, not panels. <laughs> <laughs> I, that I seems think, like the well, same to me. Yeah, I think the I, the. The difference is windows um, don't necessarily, you know, occupy like the full height or the full width of the screen. Mm-hmm. They can kind of, yeah, it's exactly like uh, it's exactly like how an iPad, um, you know, might be used with the multitasking. You uh, you can have like one or two apps open that occupy. Half oh sure, but I'm, I'm even yeah. thinking things on the iPad. Like you can, if you have, let's say, five apps that have been all been opened recently, swipe up with four fingers, and now it brings up your switcher, and you can swipe between them. Or four fingers just on the screen side to side swipes left or right through the active apps. 
So it's, it, it sounds very similar yeah. to that. Yeah, and so it is, yeah. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if, um, you know, Tengui and that inspired a lot of the interactions that we see on tablets nowadays. Um, but, yeah, it's exactly that. It's it's bringing that kind of interaction to the desktop, and I think that is, is a powerful idea. It's a desktop it that like I want you could use. become incredibly proficient. Yeah, like you could be crazy proficient, right? Though, if you knew, like, if once you'd sort of muscle memoried in all the shortcuts and mm-hmm. gestures, and you, with Tengui, you'd have a ton more options as opposed to just having the two or three fingered swipe interactions or something. Yeah, and I think I think the other thing that really makes it attractive to me is um, it's actually sort of how I use my desktop already. You know, without all the multi touch, but I tr- I don't really have Windows floating around. I full screen everything or half screen everything, and then divide things between workspaces and then I'm constantly, you know, tabbing yeah. around and yeah, if I just could do that with some fingers and some gestures, that would be even better. So Yeah, a feature that I've long wanted because I interact the same way where I do like I'll snap, you know, one thing left and right or the same thing right where you just have, you know, half and half or whatever on one screen. I want like I would like to pair like two different web browsers together that move as one because I want like my Trello and my email to be, you know, pin like they want I want them to move together as two <laughs> halves. You want you want a task-based workflow as opposed to an app-based workflow. Sure. So those are all I things mean. that you do a specific task with, right? So like if you're working in documents that are like if I'm if I'm writing a report and I'm using multiple import sources, input sources, I want all those things oh, yeah, to be yeah. in the same place and be associated together, even though they're all siloed in different applications. Yes. Yeah, you're right. That's exactly right. Yeah, because then um, then I'll switch my to like my next desktop over, right, or whatever, or workspace or whatever. And that is like set up for my writing configuration. Right. So that's got, you know, Google Scholar and then Mendeley and my different writing. So like, yeah, so you'd have it set up by task. But there's no current way in Windows and maybe there's an, on Mac, but I don't know, where you can like group those items together and have them sort of move together. You could do it. There's spaces, multiple desktops, but it's fairly crude. Yeah, I mean, that's how I do it, right? But that's not the solution I want. It does give you the ability if you were like, oh, I want to, I, I don't need my email and my task app. I want that one further down. You just swipe to all your spaces. Now you can drag that one down to the end and say, I want these other things side by side for now, but I still want those two to be together. But you're still, you're at that point, you're just managing where your windows are in a, a line of spaces with windows on them, basically. Yeah. Yeah. This is a weird tangent, but I like the idea of this different way to interact with your desktop where you're be, where you're making use of all the potential um, you know, interactions that you could have as opposed to just wasting all these different gestures sure. that you don't. So I, really what this sounds like is is maybe it's not so much a rethinking of the input method that needs to happen, like the the next step in computing. It seems more like it's it's a change in the system you're using, the operating system behind it, the thing that's driving it all that needs to be rethought of as a way to, to interact that's more touch-friendly, voice-friendly, task friendly and and i know andrew has a lot of feelings about that (laughs) i fundamentally disagree uh so we're gonna go back to brett victor here at this thing a brief rant on the future of interaction design where he points out those are like three things in the world that we do with our fingers right that we that we that we interact with the same way we do with an ipad or an iphone and that is uh uh you use your 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 the touch device you finger paint and then you write in the dust in the back of a car um, right. So the thing is that it's just not very natural for us to, 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 to point at things on a screen and slide it around and, oh, sure. Pick notes. That's a good one. And, <laughs> but like the thing is that our hands have a lot of complexity and ability to do a lot of things that you don't even really think about because it's so natural to do it. Uh, and so like opening a jar, he points out there's two grips that you use for that, that you switch between without even realizing you're doing it. 
there's the power grip where you hold on with your fingers to rotate really <laughs> that, you, that you twist with uh, in order to get like get it started but then afterwards you use the precision grip to quickly unscrew it without having stuff spill everywhere and the thing is that right now the closest thing that we have to really utilizing the full potential of our hands is uh, I would say gesture recognition like if you have a phone and you can shake it in the air and the gyro recognizes gesture and then like Tengui or a keyboard which at least allows you to use more than one finger at a time to do something because like at most when you're interacting with a touch device you're going to use one finger to point and tap something whereas our hands can do so much more than that and I think really the next step of interaction design and, and com- making computers actually useful is figuring out how to fully utilize our hands in the way that they evolve to be used. But is, isn't part of the reason that our hands do the things they do on a computer because we're typically tied at least, uh, say for a right-handed person, you have one hand that's pretty much committed to always being on the keyboard, ready to do whatever key entry you need to do. So really you're only talking five fingers at that point and... No, but that's only because we use computer and input metaphors that have been around for 67 right. years, right? The, the keyboard was the best input method they could come up with at the time because that's all the technology was right. available. Right, but, but in the, the current iteration, you, you can't say that, oh, well, we have we have 10 input methods to you or 10 things. So I'm, oh, I'm saying, what you're saying. This, this is where my point was before is we I think right now, based on the current input methods, the only way to improve the the input experience is to physically change the operating system that's behind it, which ultimately gets us to the the future of of desktop. It's not even the operating system. It's a complete fundamental rethinking of the way that you interact with the digital device. I mean, if you yeah, can I'm fully not- utilize the hand's ability to both feel and manipulate things, like you could potentially even get rid of a screen for a lot of applications. Yeah. I'm on board with that. So, so this, this is appropriate now. So I think you can plug in. So there, there's a very recent article talking about um, more hand tracking. So this is Microsoft doing more work with the Connect right devices for hand tracking, and it's sort of what we're talking about because when you use this type of technology, and we're getting back to Minority Report, which is also one of the like things you want to stay away from because the future is not my Minority Report, right? But if you want to be able to take advantage of all of your like the primary way you actually interact with things in the world with your hands or any other chosen input device, but you know, ours are as humans, we're still pretty f- uh, focused with our hands. Um, you'd want to do some hand tracking. So using something like the Connect or any IR depth tracker, right, to do that type of thing where you could actually do different gestures like the grasp or the touch, right, or whatever, the grip. Um, that's something that's something that you would potentially want to work in. But what's happening and what the problem is, and I think this is what Andrew's talking about, is currently it's being shoehorned backwards into our current right. paradigm. But what you're talking about fundamentally rethinking the way we use these things. So you'd want to have a connect with your laptop on a touch screen. Like you want all of the options available to you, mm-hmm. but then saying, now here's your sandbox. Here's your sandbox with all of these varied input methods. Now rebuild productivity around these input methods as opposed to build this cool thing that uses this input method because that's a lot right. of the problem. You can't keep tacking on additions and say, well, we're going to add all these other things. If, if the core of how we interact with the system doesn't move forward, you're always going to roll back to whatever's comfortable because it's what you've used for the last 20 X years absolutely, or 40 years or absolutely. 67 unless, years or whatever. Unless the new input device is fundamentally better and also already taps into your natural interfaces. I think, I think the problem with that though is, abilities. I think I agree with you, but I think it has to be 
like this is gets back into the good enough problem, right? Like the thing that you would have to, it would have to be such a dramatic improvement on the way that you do things that you'd be, that you'd want to switch. Cause if you give me something that I'm 5% more efficient in, well, maybe I'd switch, but right. You give the normal person something they're 5% more efficient in, they're not going to relearn their whole workflow, change right. their whole app ecosystem and everything so they can support that. You know, they're going to yep. keep what they have. Um, and then just to, just cause I want to add this in for input methods, um, we do a lot of eye tracking studies or I used to do a lot more of them, but eye tracking is a pretty cool way to do input. And there's a lot of good accessibility reasons why you'd want input. Um, but if you look at, you know, we were talking about precision input devices and older eye trackers are pretty bad and you can get some cheap ones that are sort of, you know, they get you like, you know, 10 years ago, you might be within like the an inch of where you're looking. And that was a really nice one or something. Um, well, probably better than that, but you know, like as far as what people would buy, but when you're talking about like research grade, you know, eye tracking, you're getting down to the pixel and that's really good and it has really good stability and you can move around because a lot of eye tracking problems center on being able to calibrate and that type of thing. So you could imagine having, if you like take away all the errors with eye tracking and having an interface where you look at something and I don't know what the interaction would be. Like people like to use blink as their like left click paradigm or something like that. Um, and that's a little weird. You're like, you're just winking at everybody. There wasn't, there's this weird thing with Google glass. We're like, yeah, that's exactly photos. correct. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> Very super bad. Weird. Um, right, guys. <laughs> um, but if you had a decent eye tracker, you could imagine the fast, faster than moving your mouse, your hand to your mouse, your hand to track, trackpad, faster than going to touch your screen just to make it the active screen would be a quick glance and having some type of recognized I, I, eye gesture. So anyway, I think eye tracking desktop. is a big part to play. I, I'm you just know. imagining looking at my so, hard drive icon you know, winking and it opens. <laughs> How weird that is to wink <laughs> at my computer all day. Hey, hard God, my drive. eyes would be so sore by the end of the day for that. Oh, you would learn to love it. We could talk about Neo <laughs> another time. I think hand tracking is really interesting, uh, but it's pretty... Um, uh, it's limited, man. Limited, it's super yeah. limited. Right now, yeah. anyway. The Microsoft video you put, you showed is really good. Like, it's a really interesting idea. But the big problem that you can see right away from it is that in order for it to be effective, there has to be an analog of your hands on the screen showing what they're doing in real life in order to be able to I interact think- with anything. That's not true. I, no, there's other demos where you don't have to have the actual mapping of the hand. There's things that you can manipulate without having a the straight model. And, you know, um, that's even what like sort of some of this. Yeah, that's what they show in the video, but you don't have to have that. We've seen really good uses in like surgery where we've got like right. you're doing um, flipping like images like the, you know, the surgeon wants to pull up a model of right whatever they're working on or have some type of supp- um, ancillary information and manipulate that information. There's no hand or whatever. That's so just do you guys. And that's really good because you your remember, hands, in that case, your hands are sterile or something like that, and you don't want to be able yeah. to touch something. But then, and that's but one that's, of the few cases it works. But that's still not using the full hand, right? Because it's still gesture recognition of the hand. It's not tapping into the, the inherent abilities of the hand. Right. You'd have to get the better version of it if you wanted to do the different... I mean, you could still take full advantage of your, like, grasp and tweak and point or whatever, right? Like, all that stuff could be taken into account. But I almost right, we're just saying that, like, surgery is, like, one decent use case where that hand tracking makes sense. But it's not the thing that we all want to do. Do you guys remember Leap Motion? Or did you guys ever hear about Leap Motion? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, we have them. Oh, yeah. They're strapped to the front of our Oculus right, so interaction devices. That was supposed to be kind of that same idea. But the, I don't remember their... The, the things I saw of it, the, the demo videos I saw of it were... Um, there was no like artificial hands on the screen, right? You were just, you turned your hand and it just manipulated whatever the object was on the screen. And I, I mean, yeah, it was cheap and probably not accurate. And I, I see you smirking. So I assume that it's not, no, I want to hear Colin's thought on leap motion. Oh, on the leap motion. Um, it's, uh, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I've, I've been using it with my Vive and it's, um, honestly, I haven't used it that much. There's not a whole lot of things for it, but it's, it's definitely weird just because 
you know, you see your hands represented in the virtual world, but when they touch an object or something like that, there's no force feedback or anything like that. Um, so it can, I think it's, it can be a little unnatural to interact with things that way. And I, I think in the end, you prefer to have a controller, something that feels a little more like a tool or, you know, that can give you some haptic feedback. But um, I don't know, people are coming up with like gloves and stuff that are tracked too, and then sure. those can give you feedback. So who knows? There's that Ghostbusters. I, I also thing. wonder if if things like using the Leap with your uh, Vive, if, if part of the reason it feels weird is because you can't see your physical hands in front of you and you don't yeah, see a representation it, on the screen sorry, versus if you're interacting, like you can hook it up to like a Mac and interact with an object on the screen of your Mac. You can see your hands in front of you because you're looking at the screen and your hands are between you and the screen. And I, I wonder if there's some type of connection there that because you can see your physical hands, you don't need to see the artificial hands on the screen versus with the Vive mm-hmm. because you're essentially not seeing, you're, you're like, I'm moving my arms, but I can't see where they are. I have no sense of presence with my hands and I also don't see them on the screen if that makes a difference. Yeah, I you think draw a ray between your eyes and the finger to the screen and then figure out where it is so you could interact with it that way. That'd be yeah. interesting. One one other thing that contributes to the weirdness of the leap motion is um, I, I think they haven't quite got the calibration quite right. So it always, like, when I'm using the leap motion in VR, you still sort of have a sense of where you expect your hands to be. And so sometimes the hands will appear, you know, just a little bit above or in front of or behind uh. where where you expect them to be, and that's kind of a weird cognitive dissonance when that happens. So. That is. So there's a mismatch then, between your proprioception and the actual on-screen. Exactly. Yeah. Huh. Ooh, and we think that that's that. Uh, yeah, that type of conflict, that sensory conflict theory, that's one of the things that is the contributor, or we think is a major contributor to, to uh, cyber sickness and um, simulator sickness at large. Yeah. But the Vive, the base, like the Vive default setting is to use the controllers, right? The Vive controllers, which then always, like generally show where they're at on screen, and those are tracked highly in a highly precise manner, right? right. So when I found when I used the Vive. I was like, I was looking down where the Vive controllers were in my hands, and it felt really good because they were exactly where I expected mm-hmm. them to be. Yeah, it's surprising. Like games that render like a hand on the Vive controller, it it feels kind of natural. It makes me, weird. it makes me um, actually really excited for the Oculus Touch controllers when those come out because those have added this. Um, the entire controller, or at least the buttons, I think, are actually capacitive. So instead of just detecting these button states like, is the button pressed or is it not, now they can also detect where is your finger in relation to the button. So, like, is your finger, <laughs> is your finger like, hovering above the button? Is it about to press it? And then, um, at the moment, at least, they're just using that to, like, render your hands on the controllers in VR. But, uh, you know, you could think of maybe some clever developer will find a way to map that to a useful input or something. I don't know. Well, Microsoft research had that really cool thing where they were doing that on mobile devices. Yeah. That was like a month ago. Yeah. They'd have just a time to pop up. So you could give a video that was full screen with no Chrome getting in the way. I thought that was neat. Hmm. Yeah. That was a nice use of this predictive touch or whatever. Um, the, the, so real quick, capacitive touch VR simulator, Darth Vader choke mode. That's all you need to do, right? Because then you slowly <laughs> squeeze. <laughs> okay, that's, that's Who said video games are violent? <laughs> so, so really what it comes down to is is using our hands more games. and the keyboard less is is the future of all these controls. We need to touch more things and artificially see our hands and manipulate, manipulate air and have it 
represented on the screen. Touch all the things. Touch all the things. So yeah, that so what that sounds like is it sounds like Andrew's calling card where the world of technology needs to be rethought based around the task itself and the input methods available as opposed to finding new ways to show off your fancy input method. Something something computers are from the seventies. Something you can find show notes for this week's episode at interface.fm slash 13. If you're into Reddit, like Colin is, you can go over to our interface podcast and leave us a comment. Uh, you can also follow the show on Twitter at underscore interface FM. You can send us questions, topics, um, tell us how great we are because we've been, we've been observed as how great as to how great we are. Um, you can follow us on or like us on Facebook, whatever that button is. Um, search interface podcast click the mouse cursor and as always thanks to you our listeners for tuning in subscribing we'll be back next monday and every monday like clockwork Doug Engelbart was perhaps the most brilliant computer and HCI person in the entire world. And nobody remembers him. And we constantly fail him every day. I just know him as that guy that gave that demo that one time. I, yeah. I don't even know him. So I don't, don't, don't feel bad. <laughs> oh my God. He was incredible. The, the thir- yeah, go. So he in, des- thought of the computer as a shared information space where you would work by yourself, would also allow, uh, instant and immediate collaboration with anybody else. So you could all work on the same do- same document, same thing together collaboratively very easily. Um, so it was sort of like this proto always on internet, but you'd have multiple cursors on the screen. It, it was almost sort of like the way the Google Docs works now, but better because it was yeah. built into the very underlying part of the internet. He, and, but that demo is like, if you go to watch it, you should like everybody should watch it. If you like tech at some point, because it shows him doing real time video conferencing with real time yeah. collaborative work. That's the Google docs. That's the thing. He shows the mouse off. He shows like multiple uh, novel features in a GUI off. He does, um, I don't know, a few other things. Just tons of, like this that. is a 1968. Yeah. It's just a crazy amount of work and he's like doing, and it's not even like, it's not all like sitting in a screen behind him. He's like server mainframing, with like areas across the country for the demo. Uh, it's a phenomenal, and it, this is a 1968. The amount of foresight required to do this was incredible. And so like we have barely scratched the surface of all the work that he's done into making computers actually really useful places to get things done. Uh, by the time that, so th- this showed early windows and that kind of thing. But then not long after this, he was like, all right, windows are probably a bad way of doing things. So we're going to stop using them. <laughs> all his colleagues are like but, hold up there Doug <laughs> one thing yeah. at a time uh, I see half a century of windows my friend <laughs> <laughs> at least yeah so he, he's known for the mouse but what he really did was invent ways of making computers actually like instead of the thing we do work on tools to enhance our thought and creativity so that's that's pretty big picture um Like, I don't know how you follow up with that. It's just like a dude who did everything I would ever aspire to do.